We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. This is the Watercooler podcast from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. I'm Nick Cater, the Centre's Executive Director, a columnist at the Australian newspaper and the presenter of Battleground on ADH-TV. The federal election in May 2022 brought about tectonic changes in Australian politics. For the centre-right Liberal Party, the loss of government after nine years was dispiriting but hardly a novel experience. It was the nature of the loss that shocked, the loss of seats not just to their old rivals, the Labour Party, but the loss of once safe Conservative seats in wealthy inner metropolitan districts to a new socially progressive movement known as the Teal Independence. Changes to the political landscape of this size are happening across the world in almost every democracy. To understand the significance of what's happening in Australia, it helps to see it in its international context. Henry Olsen is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Centre and a columnist for the Washington Post. He's a keen observer of the art and science of politics, whose analysis is informed by his encyclopedic knowledge of people and events in almost every country where democracy is practised. He's currently visiting Australia as a guest of the Centre for Independent Studies, and I'm delighted that he's found time to join me in our Sydney studio. Henry, welcome back to Australia. Thank you for having me, Nick. The great realignment in politics, what is it in a nutshell? In a nutshell, it is the movement of formerly left-wing, often union-enrolled, working-class voters towards the right, and the simultaneous movement of educated, often upper-income voters formally aligned with the right towards the left. It's happening virtually everywhere in varying degrees, and it's been accelerating in recent years. Can you pinpoint a moment when this realignment began? I can't pinpoint an exact moment, but it really takes off after the great financial crash of 2008 that you have working class voters who had been getting hurt for years because of the movement of heavy industry away from Western developed countries, and the great financial crash tended to crash on them. Taneously with that, you have the wokeification or the adoption of cultural progressivism by more and more people in the educated classes who are also benefiting economically. They may have been hurt somewhat in the great financial crash, depending on the country, but the fact is they had been benefiting and continue to benefit afterwards. So you have this picking up steam after 2008 in most countries, and it accelerated at different rates in different countries depending on the specific circumstances. So let's look at the parties of the left and this tension, if you like, between their two bases. The one, the industrial base, if you like, in Australia and in Britain, it's very obvious both parties of the left are aligned formally to the trade union movement, not in the United States, but the same basic sympathy supply, I guess. And then you've got the new, now we call them woke, but we used to call them intellectuals, the intellectual class, if you like, the people who've been educated in university and drawn towards the left philosophically rather than because of their economic or class interests. Is that essentially the divide? And is it now that the intellectual wing, if you like, of these parties is on the ascendance and the, the other 
side is on the decline. That is basically what has been happening. And you, depending on the country, the intellectual wing of the left is either in ascendance or it is locked in battle with the other wing. Of course, multi-party systems, you often find the complete collapse of social democratic parties as working class voters find new parties to affiliate with and people in the intellectual class form their own parties or are attracted to different parties and don't align with the central left. But in two-party or roughly two-party systems like we have in the Anglosphere, that would be essentially what is happening. And the recent years, you've been seeing a greater movement of intellectuals or people in the knowledge professions towards the center left. They rarely align with the hard left, but they decide that between a right wing or a center right that focuses more on culture and is indistinguishable on economics to with a center left that in their mind is comfortable with the capitalist system and is in their wavelength with cultural issues. You find these people moving to the Canadian Liberal Party, here to the Labor Party or to the Teal Independence, the Democratic Party in the United States, which simply adds to the tensions within the centre-left. But just to get to the essence of what the left does, what its game is compared to the centre-right, it's about looking to government intervention to solve problems rather than turning to individuals. So to what extent is the things which we expect or the things which they expect on the left government intervene in Have they changed from what they formerly were? Is that what's happening? It's partly what's happening. And it's one of the things also that the right has to come to grips with because many of the new voters want government intervention in some way, but they want government intervention in different places in ways that are antithetical to both sets of people in the center left. The center left increasingly wants to intervene in matters of culture, sometimes in matter of speech, depending on the country or the institution. They tend to want to economically intervene in favor of allocation of resources to fight climate change. They continue to support expansion of welfare state programs in general, but the passion is the intervention in the economy in order to decarbonize it. And that's something that is, again, usually not in the material interest of working class who either disproportionately works in industries that will be put out of business or work in industries that consume larger amounts of fossil fuels such as trucking. To what extent can you, the old definitions changing here, I mean this is not about social class in the way it once was and it seems to cut across lines doesn't it? So you get a movement like the Brexit movement or the Tea Party movement in the United States, it doesn't neatly fit within the boundaries of one party or the other. That's right. But what you're finding is if what you used to have was a classic structure where the more educated and wealthy you're on the right, and it was a pretty linear, absent certain historical situations, places that for historical reasons would vote against economic interests. You would tend to see that. Britain was a perfect example that every election, the the Tories would do best among the highest social class, what they called the AB set, and would do worst among the lowest social class, the DE set. Looking at the Tory party is a perfect example of what has changed in the 2019 election, where they won the greatest majority since the 1980s. They did equally as well in all four social classes for the first time in their history. They have lost some 
in the upper class, but they've gained dramatically in the lower social classes. And that means as a different class alignment as people are moving from the classes in opposite directions. And it has a very interesting effect to the political map of the country, I think, doesn't it? In the UK, and similarly in the United States, or even here, that if you draw the lines of, in their terms, red for Labour, blue for the Conservative, you draw those colours on a map, you end up with this big red blob around London, and then dotted around university cities elsewhere. Everywhere else is blue, so it's almost... Uh, a metropolitan, almost a cosmopolitan versus a, a regional divide. Yeah, that's and that's true in a lot of places, is that you take a look at the United States and increasingly high income, high education, suburban areas. The United States has had no effective Republican representation in the major cities for many years. But the suburban areas are increasingly going to the Democrats, whereas working class areas that were the heartland of the Democratic Party have increasingly gone to the Republicans. As recently as 2012, there's a group of largely white working class areas along the Mississippi River from Minneapolis down to St. Louis. And virtually all of the districts that touch that area voted elected Democrats and voted for President Obama. In 2020, every single one of those districts voted for Trump. And after this election, I think every single one of them will elect Republicans to the House. We're recording this, what, just over a week between before the midterm, so maybe by the time some people listen to this, things might have changed. But I think the broad pattern is established, right? And just staying with America at the moment, there seems to be a hardening, too, of lines. I mean, people talk about California now as a one-party state. I mean, it's almost it's hard to imagine how the Republicans could gain any sort of foothold back in California as things now look. And yet that was, of course the state in which Ronald Reagan... Fundamentally what happened is that the Republican Party coalition of 1980 was the old Republican coalition starting the economically privileged through down. Reagan brought in a lot of working class whites. California did not have large numbers of minorities in 1980. It is now a majority minority state. So Hispanics until very recently were overwhelmingly Democrat. And one of the things about that's been happening is Hispanic working class voters have been moving towards the Republicans as their white fellow citizens moved about six to 10 years ago. And that may give Republicans a chance because Hispanics are the overwhelming minority in California politics. But right now, what you have is very few white working class voters. And the sort of college voter that is attracted to California is much more Democratic than the college voter around Atlanta or around Cincinnati. And the combination of those things means it is a one-party area. But conversely, the South. Much of the South was one-party Democratic as recently as 30 years ago. And it is now one-party Republican. These things are having equal and opposite reactions. At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. 
it challenges both sides of politics, of course. Let's talk about the left or the Democrats. In your case, it seems to me that the problem for the Democrats right now is that they have gone to a very woke agenda, which has strong adherents, but not enough of them to win a majority across the country. At some point, they have to gain the support of other more working class voters or voters from different ethnic the thing, a center-left party in a two-party system has a wide range of adherents, from the far left to the moderate center. And that is nowhere more true than it is in the United States, because we don't have even a small green party or in the Canada, a new democratic, social democratic party to siphon off the more left-wing voters. So the Joe Biden coalition had everybody from the farthest left reasonable actors in American politics to people who voted for them purely transactionally because they didn't like Donald Trump. Combining and maintaining that coalition means putting your foot firmly on the center side because those are the voters who are least attached to you. But the problem is the Democratic activist is more and more firmly on the hard left side. And that means what you need to do to win the general election loses you primaries. And what will, because we don't select our candidates by small groups of members influenced by party elites, our candidates are selected by mass elections, voter primaries, basically general elections, but only for people who choose to affiliate with one party. So you can't make that decision at a party level. It's the voters who decide, and the Democratic activists want a more left-wing party. And this is fundamentally unsolvable, and it makes the Democratic situation harder than any other parties in the Western world, save perhaps labor, where they also have an effective two-party system, even though there is a small Green Party that can siphon off a and they, too, have to have Corbynistas to moderates in the same party, and it's very hard to balance. Yeah, in, in Britain, we're talking about that. Yes, in Britain, yes. Your logic, your logic sounds perfectly reasonable. You've got a party that goes from left to right, let's say. The only place to lead it is from the middle. But here's the problem, Henry. On so many of the issues which animate us today... It's hard to find a middle. Where do you find a middle between, say, pro-gay marriage and anti-gay marriage, an issue which is now dealt with in your country as it is here? But where do you find in the middle between pro-abortion and pro-life? And where's the middle between extreme action on climate change because the planet's about to ignite or steady as she goes? There is no middle position on those issues for the leadership to find, is there? It depends how you define it. Certainly on the activist side, there's no middle. And between pro-life and pro-choice or pro-abortion rights, the two sides have no middle in which they can meet. But there is a middle in public opinion. In the United States, the middle of public opinion on abortion is basically have it legal in the first trimester and have it illegal afterwards. On climate change, it's do some subsidies of things, but don't affect our, our standard of living all that much. On questions of wokeness, it's or racial tensions. It's let's deal with some of the problems, legitimate problems of the past, but let's not throw out the American baby with the revisionist bathwater. And so, 
what makes it hard on the left is the hard advocates of the left usually share all of these views in tandem and are uniquely unwilling to compromise. You go into a climate activist meeting and say, well, you know, we actually need, we actually need to go slow to bring the people along with you, and you will hear 10 years to save the planet. They won't accept what the middle will give them. The same in the United States is often true on questions of racial tensions. It's, no, actually, we need to say that whites have inherent supremacy because of our history and that they continue to suppress minorities. This doesn't even appeal to large numbers of minorities who don't see themselves suppressed. But the woke activists won't hear of it, and that makes the left's position extremely difficult. Here's your problem, isn't it? Because politics is all about compromise. As Thomas Sowell said, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. I would amend that to say democratic politics is about that. And then one has to ask, if everything is a right and everything is a crisis, how consistent is that with genuine parliamentary or representative democracy? Can we accommodate people who take that absolutist view within a, a democratic system, or will in the end it start to fall apart? Well, the more one adopts uncompromising views, the less difficult, the more difficult it is to actually have a functioning, stable democracy. That the Spanish Civil War is a perfect example of that. That on the one hand, you had Spain that was roughly divided 50-50, and an ascendant left wing that would make no compromise on reordering every asset aspect of society. And Francisco Franco, was the result. One can find similar examples on the right in European history of a right that would not compromise that produced revolution as well. Um, so in a democratic system, note though that this, these reactions required the ending of democracy for a period of time through force. Absent that, what will happen is a side that continues to be intransigent will eventually drive the middle to the other side if the other side is open to forming a majority and is not equally intransigent. We've talked about the left, now the right. Where are the challenges on the right? One of the challenges on the right, there's two challenges I would see on the right. One is cultural issues, its own intransigence. I can speak about the United States. There are people on the United States right that want to talk about old-style Christian religion as the foundation of the moral basis for the United States. There's no majority for that. You know, the middle of America is not as non-religious as many other Western countries. But the center of opinion in America is similar to where it is even in Western Europe, which is identifying as Christian but not going to church very often. So what you need to do is find a way to talk to people who may agree with you on various issues about protecting the family, about pornography, about teaching six-year-olds, about gender identity and so forth, but won't do it if it is cloaked in theology. So that's an American example. Obviously, that has no bearing on the Australian division, but the intransigence of the cultural right can be a barrier. Then you have the question of economics, which is that if you're going to have a more working class constituency, you're going to have people who need intervention targeted in limited ways. It's going to be harder if you're going to have more union members to make business management versus union a mobilizing issue. It, in the United States, we have a, you 
talk about your budget deficit. Hello, we've been running it for longer, and it's much more deep. And so on the right, you have economic hardcore neo-libertarians who say what we need to do is slash spending on our old age programs. There's no working class majority for that. You have to compromise. Now, I am arguing for various aspects of compromise, but if the old right remains intransigent in the old positions, they will be unappetizing to the people who they could recruit. And that, in a two-party system, ramps up tensions between ver one side that won't compromise on politically salient issues, another side that won't compromise on politically salient issues, and a middle that increasingly gets frustrated and grows in size. In multi-party systems, what it means is the creation of new parties. Because in multi-party systems with proportional representation, you can obtain those. You know, so you have the Sweden Democrats, which used to be a fringe ultra-nationalist party that now is the largest non-socialist party in Sweden. Why? It's because they originally, their voters were looking at the center-right, and then the center-right drove them away in the migration crisis, and they found a party that actually echoed their concerns, which was strong welfare states, strong national identity, and strong private sector, all in this non-ideological but coherent combination. Uh, but in a two-party system, it's harder to find that. Looking at the last election here in 2022, May 2022, the Conservative Coalition, Liberal and National Parties, uh, lost roughly 660,000 votes, which is a lot. That's about 6% of the voters. That's in the primary vote. They can't win government from that position. They've got to get them back. But the problem is when you look at where those votes went to, some went to independent parties on the left, the Green Party and the party that's not a party but it's a group of independents, the Teals, and other votes went to parties you'd think to be on the right, the United Australia Party, One Nation, Liberal Democrats, and a number of independents. Here's the dilemma for them, Henry. They've got to get those 660,000 people back and hopefully some more, but how can you adjust your party in such a way that it appeals to both constituencies? You can't, not in the fullest sense. The Liberal Party is going to have to choose. And my argument is that every conservative center-right party that has been faced with this before, and there are parties that have been faced with this before, when they choose to try and focus on winning back their old upscale adherents, they're unsuccessful. And the reason they're unsuccessful is they can't go far enough to the center on the politically salient issues that are driving those upscale voters away and keep their party unified. So then, to keep, because the core of every center-right party are people who are economically liberal to moderate and culturally conservative to moderate. The more you make it a party that embraces globalism, the knowledge economy, innovation, and cultural liberalism, the more you both split your leadership from its own base and drive away the potential working class voters you get, while still not being strong enough on those issues to attract 100% of the people who you lost to begin with. This is the crisis of Malcolm Turnbull in the 2016 election, and the Liberal Party so I couldn't go in that direction, but it has still not solved that question. 
If you enjoy these water cooler conversations produced by the Menzies Research Centre, you might also care to check out our weekly TV show, Battleground, on ADH TV. Battleground streams on Friday nights at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time, or you can watch the entire back catalogue on demand anytime you please. You'll find interviews with Dr J Bhattacharya, Lord Jonathan Sumption, Claire Lehman, Martin Isles and many others, plus my regular catch-up with my Menzies Research Centre colleague Amanda Stoker. To watch these and more great ADHTV content, go to www.adhtv or better still, download the free ADHTV app on your smartphone or smart TV. You'll find the app in your app store. Battleground is also available as an audio podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or whichever platform you're listening on now. You'll find links to the ADH TV website, adh.tv, in the podcast notes. That's Battleground, streaming weekly on ADH TV. Has this great realignment got to such a degree that we can now expect parties of the centre-right to win over more traditional conservative blue-collar voters, to win over enough of them to form a new coalition that can actually win government? Yes, I believe it has. What you'll need to find is you'll need to focus. There'll still be a fair number of people who are economically upscale. You know, in the 2019 British election, upscale voters still voted for the Tories. They didn't abandon them. It was just that they got fewer of them they did before, and they more than made up for it from the bottom. And that's what I think the Liberal Party should be focusing on, is a party that is focusing on the working class voters in places like Lyons and Tasmania, rather than focusing on trying to win back their former adherents and up, upper scale vote places like Curtin in Western Australia. And if you actually you know, look at it, you say, yeah, there are lots of seats on a one-for-one -one basis that you can replace. Say we get back a couple of the seats from the Teals and from Labor, but maybe still lose two-thirds of those. But you can more than make up for that in the outer suburbs and the borders of the rural areas in places that aren't two-to-one Labor, in places that, you know, like Eden Menara or Dobell, that were nearly 50-50 before the last election, moved into a strong two-party Labor position this time. But you can win those back with a focus on their issues, and that would more than make up for the loss of some of the crown jewels of the Liberal Party. But have we moved into a new era? And I ask you that on the basis that the vote split at the last election, basically one-third, one-third, one-third. So uh, basically one-third for Labour, one-third for the coalition, one-third for none of the above. Greens, independents, teals, one nation, whatever. Now, how, are we now at a, are we at a position where we are we approaching a more a position that would be more common in a European country where we have a permanent... The only way you govern is in, in a series of ad hoc coalitions with whoever can get a majority. If neither party adapts to this, that is what you're facing. If neither party adapts to this to create a new majority, what you will see is more of that one-third, 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 and then the Labour labor will necessarily have to govern in coalition with Greens or with Teals, but that will create their own splits. It's harder because for the liberals to win in that situation because unlike it, you said one-third, 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 but in a sense what it is is one-third, one-third, one-sixth, one-sixth. That teals and parties of the left are about half of that 
non-major party vote and parties of the right, but they're concentrated in one party, the Greens, whereas the parties on the right that are protest parties are splits that they can't win seats in the House. In the Senate, you can create those coalitions, but you can't create it in the House. So as long as that pertains, that movement will slightly benefit labor in the short term, but then you'll have the question, if labor wins 70 seats and the Greens have six or seven, you know, keep the four they have and pick up a couple more from in, in inner urban areas, probably from labor, what's the price of that coalition? It drives them to the left economically and it drives them to the left socially. That creates a pressure for the next election. So yes, but in a, unlike in Europe, where once a party is established in a PR system, it can kind of stay. Two-party system that even with preferences, Australia pushes you to, it's much harder to see that being a permanent state, permanent meaning like when we look back, there's this 30-year era of coalition governments and more of a temporary coalition state as the ultimate return to some type of party dominance and party competition returns. Another way to look at the the divide here is is in terms of age. So it's always the case, of course, that you would get a larger number of young people voting for parties of the left. That's been well observed in history. But that has now become deep and entrenched in this country to the extent where if you take, say, voters under 35s, among under 35 women, in this country, the last election, the coalition came third behind Labour and the Greens. And even with men, they struggle. Is that something, again, that the Liberal Party now has to content itself? Is it, is it now the party of the baby boomers? Again, people do change as they age, and parties change as they adapt to existing trends. You know, Just because somebody at the age of 24 when they're unmarried are voting for one party doesn't mean they will make that same choice when they're married or have a partner and children when they're 44. Um, If you looked at American politics over the last 50, 60 years, you were constantly seeing the younger voting for the Democrats. And by the time they're in middle age, that age cohort is split or trending to the Republicans. It's been a pretty regular trend. But look, One of the things that we're seeing in a lot of different places is college-educated women are moving to the left to far left. That may be permanent, but what we also tend to be seeing is less educated men tend to be moving to the right, and that may also be permanent. So we may have a gender difference in how this breaks out. I'd say the data are too it'd be too difficult to speculate about what's going to happen 15 years from now. But yeah, there are some tendencies in that direction. You tentatively offer some suggestions to Australia about the kind of policy areas that the coalition should explore if it wants to get back in the game as a party of government. Where should they look? They need to offer something specific on climate, but one that does not compromise the future of working-class Australia. And what I think that means is focusing on nuclear power as Australia is generating to generate electricity to the extent feasible. I know there's academic debate about this, looking at expanding battery storage capability, putting research money into that, but being resolutely in favor of 
resource exploration, extraction, and exportation. That is the secret sauce of Australian economic boom, that you are the resource provider for the free world increasingly, and that also gives you a place to export. Not That's not China. You know, exporting, if America is going to start bringing back manufacturing jobs from China, somebody's going to need to send those resources for the steel that we need, and that can be Australia. But absolutely not doing that. There will be some people attracted to labor in the teals who will find that attractive enough to say, okay, they're good enough. Most of those people won't because they're more motivated by climate extremism or climate activism. But what it will do is send a clear signal to working class voters that you don't have to worry about your future with us. They could change their minds tomorrow and raise the price of petrol. They could change their mind tomorrow and stop resource extraction. They could decide to do this because they won't commit to your future. We'll commit to your future. So that's the first thing. The second thing that the new coalition needs to do when it focuses on questions of classic issues of economic regulation is cut taxes from the bottom up, not from the top down. You've seen some of that in the Morrison government. You did not see that in the Turnbull government. I think you need to see it more, though, that instead of focusing on income tax rates, as was done in the third stage, three tax cuts, is that you should increase the band at which the 0% tax rate applies. That's one that will help everybody. We'll get a tax cut, but it won't be disproportionately geared towards the top. I think when you're talking about corporate tax cuts, you should be talking about rate cuts on small and medium-sized businesses and independent entrepreneurs as opposed to large corporations. And I think when you talk about deregulation, you need to focus on getting rid of barriers to advancement or employment in places where working class voters find themselves, which is focusing more on those industries that disproportionately employ working class people or where they're likelier to be independent small business operators as opposed to looking at big scale financial deregulation or labor market deregulation. And then on the question of culture, what you need to do is make it clear that you're patriotic. Yes, Australia has its history. None of our history is perfect and to the extent we need to look back. but. What makes Australia Australia is that everyone is equal. Everyone is, this is a classless society, and you need to maintain that so that no special voice for anyone while recognizing that there, and yes, I know what I just said, recognizing uh, past injustices and put a heavy weight on, the, on policies that favor families as opposed to those that favor single childless individuals. Nothing wrong with choosing not to be a parent. It's a free liberal country. That's your choice. But the fact is that if we don't have children, we don't have a future. And putting policies in place that protect parents' authority over their children and make it easier to have children if that's the choice you make in life is where the coalition should be. Each of those positions will attract people who are not currently voting for the coalition they will annoy and anger people in the knowledge media classes, but they weren't going to be coalition voters anyway. And sometimes having that angry overreaction is in your political interest. Finally, I've just got to get you your thoughts on the current state of politics in the United States. As I say, we're just recording this just before the midterms. 
I'm going to ask you to make some predictions nonetheless. How do you see the midterms playing out? Midterms will be good for Republicans, I expect. I publish my predictions in the Washington Post the day before the midterms, so my final answer will be delivered then. But I expect Republicans to take control of both chambers of Congress and that for the gains in each to be in excess of what the common wisdom is on the day that we are recording this, about eight days before our midterm. Assuming the Republicans do get a majority, perhaps in both houses, have they got the good sense? Have they got the ability to use that wisely? I think that's the unanswered question. There will be elements that will be pushing them to use it unwisely. There will be elements to, that will be pushing them to use it wisely. And leadership is, the proof is in the pudding. I don't know how Kevin McCarthy, who is going to be the next Speaker of the House, will act. He's never, he's been a leader in politics all of his life, but he's never had a majority. He was the leader of the Republicans in the California state legislature when they were in the minority, and he's not been one of the top two positions when the Republicans were in the majority. The real important decisions were made by the speaker or by the majority leader, and this is the first time he'll have responsibility. Mitch McConnell, on the other hand, is a seasoned leader. He will not want to push things that will be dead on arrival in a Senate where the minority can still prevent any move in legislation through the filibuster. But if the House wants to be more extreme, all he can do is not act on what Republicans send him. And I suspect that he and McCarthy will try and reach a behind-the-scenes understanding so that hotheads in the House Republican conference don't create problems that will be scotched in the Republican Senate. Three quick questions. Number one, will Joe Biden seek a second term? You never want to make predictions so far in advance when there's so much uncertainty. I lean towards saying he won't. And I think if the Democrats do as poorly as I think they will do, I think the internal pressure of the party will ramp up on him to make it likelier than not that he will say no. He clearly wants to, but it's also clear that age is catching up with him. And it's also clear that the left that was never in love with him will blame him rather than themselves for a midterm debacle. And it may be that the combination of these things make him decide to do something he doesn't want to do. Will Donald Trump have another shot at seeking a second term? Donald Trump will almost certainly declare shortly after the midterm. My guess is that he dances on the victory celebration by announcing too close to the Republican victory, because that's what the Donald does. That gives him a shot. I think he starts as the favorite. I don't think he is guaranteed of it. But as we speak, the only Republican who could defeat him is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And so a lot rides on whether he decides to challenge. Henry, it's been far too long between visits. My thanks to Tom Switzer at the Centre for Independent Studies for inviting you back to Australia. I look forward to catching up next time, but for the moment, thank you for taking part in a water cooler conversation. You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.